Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right. Absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 789th episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to be part of your food revolution. Today's episode is a replay of our monthly seed chat that we do live the fourth Tuesday of each month. Come and join us live at seedchat.org or enjoy the replay here. Welcome, welcome everybody. Greg Peterson from Urban Farm U, coming to you from my farm in Asheville, North Carolina, and I'm with Bill. Hello, Bill. Hello, hello everyone. Nice to be here. So we are talking about wildflowers. Who doesn't love wildflowers? Contrary to popular belief, you don't toss wildflowers on your land and hope that they grow. Like most crops, they need special tending to get them started. If you're really daring, you might mimic the patterns of the plants whose seeds you want to sprout. But keep in mind, wild plants put out thousands of seeds because so many of them don't make it. They're looking for the odds to be in their favor. Oh, organic wildflower seeds? The answer to that is, and we'll talk about it more, sorry, you will probably have to make your own. So many wonderful things can happen when we learn the dance of wildflower propagation. All right, Bill, let us jump in, sir. (laughs) Well, you touched on major themes. It was, gosh, it's got to be 20 years ago. One of the most popular mail order products in America was called Meadow in a Can. I remember that. And Norm Thompson, I think, was the company that sold it. And literally on the can said, sprinkle this out in your yard and enjoy wildflower colors forever. After all, they're wild, right? Yep. They'll take care of themselves. Yep. And what we found through trial and error, mostly error, <laughs> over, <laughs> over a 15-year period was that rarely works. And it got me to thinking pretty deeply about it. It's like, why? What? It, it seems to make sense that if they're wild, they'll take care of each other, take care of themselves. But If you think about it, why do we call them wildflowers? That's a really interesting thing in and of itself. It's because they're not domesticated. Uh. They're the ones that we have not domesticated. And there's a reason why Mm -hmm. most of the things that are called wildflowers have not been domesticated. 
And after experimenting, I figured out it was one of two things. Either they're impossible to domesticate, at least at a commercial scale. And things like Indian paintbrush, we never did learn how to grow in pots or in trays or flats or the kinds of things you would need to make them domesticated. And it turns out that they have a symbiotic relationship with other plants around them in the soil, and it's getting really complicated. And so you would have to transplant a whole Indian paintbrush ecosystem with each plant to get them to work. And it's wild. It's out there. It's going to stay out there. The other reason, just quickly, is that they're too easy. They're they're weeds, basically. They take over. And mm-hmm. gardeners, especially very proper ones in very proper settings, horticultural societies and, and whatnot, flower societies, learned a long time ago, leave them out in the wild where they belong. Let them compete with each other and do whatever they need to do. But don't bring them into your yard because they'll just cause you headaches. They'll start to take over. They'll get into your lawn, whatever it is. It, it'll mm-hmm. increase the maintenance that you have. So when you think about growing wildflowers, think about those two things to begin with. Likely, it's either going to be hard, as you were saying, there's going to be some trick, something that isn't easy in order to get it to work in your yard, or it's weedy and maybe shouldn't be in your yard. And I can talk about there are there a lot of exceptions to that, but those are the two reasons. And what kind of flowers are we talking about? There's a whole, if you, if you Google up wildflower mix, say, you'll, you'll start to see some really familiar faces. There are things like California poppies mm-hmm. and bachelor's buttons and African daisies. Usually there's lupin in there. There's a clarkia of some kind. These are flowers that grow easily from seed. Some of them are perennials, but they'll flower in the first year. And that's pretty much a requirement for the wildflower seed industry is instant gratification. Oh yeah, People that want to wait around for a couple, three years for them to start to bloom. So these are the flowers that have come from different areas of the country or the world that uh, generally are not in domestic settings very much. Some of them could cross over. Things like poppies aren't probably because they don't cut very well. You cut a poppy and within minutes, it's usually droops and it's gone. And you know, that I guess the definitions are all starting to blur here, but those are the kinds of flowers that you would see in the, in a wildflower mix. And some of them have been pseudo domesticated, haven't they? Oh yeah. Yeah. Like it, in, when I was in Phoenix, I'd drive through neighborhoods in the spring and there were some yards that were just packed full of blooming flowers, poppies and. Right. So those are wildflowers someplace and hopefully if you saw them in phoenix they don't cross over into that other category so they're easy to grow they're Mm -hmm. annuals they bring you lots of color and they're not going to be too weedy they're not going to take over so that what looks like a beautiful thing the first year ends up being a nightmare down the road because mm-hmm. it takes over everything. And we were warned of this, of one of our favorite wildflowers for mixes, uh, African daisies. Oh, yes. When, when we moved to Tucson. And to get local knowledge wherever you are. I guess that's the, the number one thing. And in fact, there are, one could argue there have been millions of dollars worth of damage, so-called damage done to American agriculture Yeah. from wildflower seeds that came originally in wildflower mixes from out of state. And so 
what's perfectly okay to have in a mix or to have in your yard to give you what you were just talking about, yards packed full of color, may actually contain a, a noxious weed, which is a list maintained by your local state of plants that it's illegal for you to plant. It's actually illegal for someone to sell you those seeds in the first place, but that doesn't get policed very well with mail order. And you just have to be careful. When I was selling wildflower seeds, I would get calls occasionally from other parts of the country. And I'd have to hold, this is back before the internet, we had the phone and I'd hold the phone way out here because they'd literally be yelling at me for breaking the law. And how un unconscious could I be to sell the seeds to this certain flower that was going to cause weedy, it was a noxious weed was going to cause problem in their area. And my response, I'm horrified. I won't send it to you, to your state. Now that I know, thank you, but they're fine We're in my yard. They work well for most of our customers. And so it, it's a really regionally specific thing. So find out what those flowers are for your area. That's one of the things that should be high on your list. And on, now that with the internet here, every state maintains a restricted plant or noxious weed list. Oh, very good. Yeah. So find the one in your state and get the list and make sure none of the, the seeds, especially if you're planting a wildflower mix, are, are on that list. In Arizona, I know that we have globe chamomile. Oh, yeah. And it's while it's beautiful, it's high in oils that when they dry are quite flammable oh. and it grows voraciously it can take over an entire field in a season and so that's something we have to be conscious about so what is your suggestion for somebody about that so let's um double click on that a little bit why did it take over the field i can tell you probably okay. i'm guessing yeah. it was disturbed soil somehow. It was yep. a parking lot or it was a construction site or it got run over or something. And it's in those first years when everything else is taken out that these so-called uh, pioneer species, which is most of what the noxious weeds are, get mm -hmm. a foothold and come in. And so let's not demonize them. They're doing their job. They're usually deep rooted. Lots of times I have lots of root hairs. I'm, we used to, I used to get calls about removing yellow sweet clover in Idaho was that same way. The research shows that one yellow sweet clover plant can have 25,000 miles of root hairs. What? And, and fix pounds of nitrogen. Wow. And deep mine minerals. Yeah. And it would come up in parking lots. It's nature marching on. It's the first plant and to get things ready for a new plant succession. So it's doing its job. There may be side effects we don't like, either they're poisonous for livestock, they have lots of oils that cause fires. We yeah. have these overlays that we put on it, but it's not the plant's fault. And so the key to that whole thing is don't disturb the soil in the first place. Right? Or if you do have a plant, most of our modern Western kind of construction and landscaping doesn't do that. And that's right. why we're making work. As we used to sing at High Altitude Gardens, we're painting the roses red, we're painting the roses red. <laughs> then he comes up and goes, why would you paint the roses red? They're really beautiful when they're white. It's because the queen wants them red, right? 
Yeah. That's from Hellas in Wonderland. And that's what we were doing. We were making work. We do all this destruction and then all the weeds come in and then we spray herbicides on them, which destroy the soil even more and get it ready for more pioneer species and so on and so forth. Just to bring it back around, wildflowers are not a bad thing to plant mm -hmm. in disturbed soil because many of them are pioneers. Again, make sure none of them are weeds and don't expect it to stay the same year after year. Some of them are gonna do better than others and you'll never predict which ones until you get it in your specific location. So yeah, plant a mix of flowers and see which ones work. And then the easy thing to do is let the stronger ones that reseed that wanna be there take over and that's what you get. Yeah. Hopefully it's beautiful. If you want to keep a balance of colors, you're going to have to add in other flowers and do it more like a cottage garden and manage it. Mm -hmm. But then you've moved away from what wild means anyway. You had mentioned in the introduction about organic wildflower seeds. Let's, let's tease that apart a little bit. There are the seed industry is going through a, a beautiful renaissance. It's being decentralized. Is a little as five years ago, four companies owned seventy percent of the world's seeds on all levels, and and we've just seen this beautiful explosion. That's with the seed library movement, with seed yep. exchanges, and then many new small regional seed companies. And I see more and more regional seed companies that are doing their own local seeds. And they would be, maybe there are some exceptions out there. But when I was in the industry about 10 years ago, there were very few large scale industrial sized wildflower seed growers and sellers. Some of them are contract growers like our friend, John. We can buy a number of wildflower seeds and we get vegetable seeds for our great American seed up from a friend in Oregon and they do contract and do it. So you got a few of those guys, but then there are a couple of companies that just specialize in wildflower seeds only. And when they grow seed, wildflower seed commercially, they have to make sure there are no weed seeds oh. in their lots. They call them. Once you harvest a seed, you clean it, you start to bag it, you have to send some of it to a state lab to get tested. And they test for weed seed. And if there's even one noxious weed seed, they'll have to throw out the whole lot. It's biology. If you yeah. only have one noxious weed plant in the middle of your field and it makes a million seeds, you can see how that works. And so the tolerances for wildflower seeds are really low for them to be acceptable commercially to be sold. So mm -hmm. how do you make sure of that? How do you make sure of that? Yeah. You use all the herbicides, and pre-emergence that you can. And it becomes a chemical Armageddon. And that's almost a direct quote from an old friend of mine, Claire, who uh, had a company called uh, Wind River Seeds in Manderson, Wyoming. And they tried to do certified organic wildflower seeds. And she said it ended up becoming a chemical nightmare because there's, you just can't do it. Otherwise, there's other stuff comes up. And it's just, they're not uniform enough not to see the other. It's just a, and so it's rare, at least in my day, that was, you never saw certified organic wildflower seeds. So, and that's ironic, right? Here we are. We want to do the right thing in our yard. We're moving away from lawns. We're going to plant wildflowers that need less inputs. We listen to Bill. So we're going to get a mix maybe, and we're going to manage it correctly. We're not going to have noxious weeds. And yet 
you're getting seed that used a tremendous amount of chemicals just to get them to you. And so what's the answer? Collect your own. Yeah. Collect your own. Now we have seed exchanges, yeah. seed libraries. And then every time you take a walk and seeds, grab some. And when you come home, maybe what I did in Cornville was I had an outer hillside. Every time I got back from my walk, I just toss them out onto the hillside. Ah, how'd that work? It starts to work after a while. It takes this, you got to be in it for the long game. And some of the seeds are the seeds of some of the plants that you gather may be perennials. So they won't bloom for the first year, but maybe the second year. And if the area that you have has been disturbed before, mm -hmm. you've started your own new succession. So maybe only pioneer species will work until then the conditions are ready for you for the kinds of seeds that you just harvested. But in the end, over a 10-year period, I've seen some beautiful, priceless wildflower gardens come about that way. Maureen, thanks for the resource. She posted in the chat, resource from University of Arizona on StinkNet. That's what they called globe chamomile. So if, you, <laughs> if you type in University of Arizona StinkNet, this documentation will come up. Maureen also says, how should we store seeds we harvest for wildflowers, such as pestimens, pen, penistimus, I think that's supposed to be pestimens, Greg's mist flower, et cetera. When and how do you disperse them? Okay, maybe one of the best lessons I learned in my own trial and error over 25 years or so was that don't store them. <laughs> becomes a real hassle anyway. And, but there's some logic behind it. And I learned this from things like sago lilies or mariposa lilies, which grow in almost every state. Maybe mm -hmm. almost everyone will know what I'm talking about. Their seeds start to lose their, and their ability to germinate in high numbers, almost the moment they're harvested. Oh, interesting. And it's a really steep curve. If you try to keep them for three or four weeks or six weeks, you get very poor germination. And so the moral of the story is, hey, guess what? It's in the field. The pod has dried. It's starting to open up. And with sago lilies, that's really wonderful because you can just tip that pod over into a bag and all these beautiful seeds will rush into your bag. So if you get them at the right time, you can go through and get a, a lot of seed, but you should plant it that day. Because why? Because it was going to fall on the ground naturally. That Thank its whole day. system yeah. is set up for that. And so penstemons, many of them need a cold treatment. Cold treatment, roughly equivalent to the number of days you get snow in your area. Sometimes that's not always true. So... Why not just plant them when you harvest them right away and let all that natural stuff take place? You'll get better germination than you will if you try to refrigerate them or cold treatment. That's just my own experience. Obviously, if you want to do commercial, if you want to um, take them to a seed exchange, there's other considerations. But the systems that worked best for me, especially around the wild seeds that I gathered, was plant, take them home and plant them immediately. Um, if you're going to store them, keep them cool, dark, and dry, as you would with all seeds. Don't bag mm -hmm. them up on a rainy day or a high humidity day. And try to, as you said at the beginning of the show, try to mimic nature as much as possible. Yeah. And 
and the conditions that you provide for them. And, and that would be my question to how do you actually plant them? And we got a couple more questions here, but um, I want to take right. a break and just talk about Seed School Online real quick. Uh, you and I, I went to in 2011, over 4th of right. July weekend, I came down to Tucson and did a seven-day in-person seed school with you guys. Right. It At was botanical gardens. Uh, yeah. It? No, this was in Tucson, UK. Yeah, it was, this was in Tucson. And All right. It was absolutely amazing. And I appreciated it. And you and I pretty quickly started a conversation about how to make seed school exist online. And so over the course of the next three or four years, uh, you put together this amazing presentation that we now call Seed School Online. You want to just talk about it for a minute? And what Seed School came about because it's the smartest thing for any of you listening to get involved with if you want to survive. <laughs> That's my extreme way of reacting to climate change and the social changes I see around me is that when it comes down to it, the food system is pretty fragile. And yeah. if we're going to rebuild one that has any sort of resilience or sustainability, it's going to need all the diversity it can get. Yeah. And in order to do that, we need literally millions of people that know how to grow and save their own seeds because that adaptation process that happens in each individual place will help us create and keep alive the diversity. How do we get millions of seed savers? We got to start teaching them somehow. Yeah. <laughs> and that was the idea behind seed school. And so I don't know, I did over 40 of them probably and learned a lot, learned a lot about mm -hmm. how to get distilled down and get the essence of the best ideas across to people in the short, in a short period of time so that they'll become great seed savers. And we didn't always do it well in the beginning, but we took feedback. We kept changing and changing. So by the time we did Seed School Online, man, we had years and scores of experiences to draw from. And so basically it's a distilled version of that. It didn't, we didn't just make this up on the internet because it sounded like a good idea and get chat GPT to write a description for it or whatever. Exactly. This, this was sweat and tears over a long period of time. It's 2013. Yeah. And now that I'm getting older and I'm still speaking and doing teaching, I realized that was a golden period in my life. All the information was there. I was practiced at it. Everything was flowing. Mm -hmm. And so it's really a beautiful jazz quartet. It's like the Grateful Dead. People say, oh, God, you got to listen to Portland. April 14th, 1976, because all those guys were on that night and they passed yeah. those tapes around. That Ski School Online is like that for me. It captured at a time the band, so to speak, at its best. Yeah. And yeah, it's been real fun to see it. And again, is it outdated? No. No. Bella and I went back and listened to it the other day and we're just shocked at how relevant we're just yeah. trying to do our job and get people to save seeds. And out of that whole experience, we had 13 of our students are either managers or own their own seed companies. So not only did they become seed savers, they, they joined it on a professional level and scores of seed libraries and seed exchanges were started Amazing. by the students that came out of there. And by the time we were done at the Rocky Mountain Seed Alliance, we had over 109 people in North America sign up to be seed teachers. 
Oh, so nice. that you could come online, find if there was one, if you wanted to do a seed school in your own area, you could find one of the ones online near you and get, that's how we're going to get millions of them. And so I want all of you that are listening tonight to think about that. Be a seed teacher. Yeah. You just need two things. Honesty about what you don't know. Yeah. Every time my favorite, after a while, my favorite answer to a question that somebody would have at seed school is, I don't know. <laughs> because we're going to make an adventure together now to find out. Yeah. And, and we only had one seed school and all the seed schools I ever did where somebody came and answered all the questions. That doesn't mean they know everything in the world, but all the questions that came up in seed school got answered. And that was Joseph Lofthouse. Oh, of course. That's when we, that's before he'd done anything. And we knew he was special. This is way back in the day. Yeah. 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 Seed School Online right. is a program through Urban Farm U that's presented by Bill. And it's nine lessons. And you can find out a lot more about it at seedschoolonline.com. And just jump in right now. We're running through the end of the year. We're running a, on it. It's normally $197. We're selling it because we're so committed to people learning it for $29. And yeah, it's, I, had, I, I had to pull his leg to get yeah, that. It's on demand. You can watch it whenever you want. It's on our education portal and you'll have it forever. And there's a whole module on wildflowers. And it was always the most popular module. It's been viewed more than any of the others. And so if you're interested, that's how we can bring this back around. You'll learn a lot of the things that I just don't have time to go through tonight. I'm gonna, I wanna answer any more of your questions. No stupid questions. The most powerful ones are the ones that will only help you. So don't be afraid to ask those in a public forum. So if you are listening to this on the podcast, after the fact, you can go to seedchat.org and sign up for the live event which we do 11 months a year. We do it February through December. And then, yeah, and ask your questions then. Exactly. Chella says, do you consider wildflowers the same as native? No, they're two uh, different Western yeah. civilizational abstractions that are almost as bad as flags in that they're emotionally loaded terms. Oh, yes. <laughs> Yeah, you start talking natives with people and it's the church of the natives. Yep, exactly. Is out there a lot. And so no, there there's all sorts of mix up and crossover. Almost all the wildflowers you could say almost uh, categorically are native somewhere. And um should you not bring them into your area because they're not native? No. Of course right. not. Every they're already there. They're everywhere. What we need to do is learn to be smart enough to only bring in the ones that work really well for us, that, that work well in our own managed environments that aren't going to cause any damage, that give us great joy. Yeah. So That's check, what we need to do. So if you're in the United States, check with your state's noxious weed list to make sure that you're not bringing in something that uh, right. doesn't belong. And learn your native plants. Mm -hmm. highly recommend that you can learn so much about where you live it's an exciting adventure but when it comes to your own landscape make that the start 
of a conversation about what you use in your landscape and not the end. I don't know how many times I had people say, oh, I only use natives. Yeah. <laughs> and that there's a lot of problems with that. We could go into those or people have questions, but it's a pretty limiting concept. No, we're not. Uh, gonna... All right. All right. PJ, <laughs> PJ says regarding chill hours or chilling seeds, right. are they only for seed germination? I've heard we can mimic chill hours by putting the seeds in the refrigerator. Does that mean that trees will produce fruit without annual chill hours? So PJ, are you talking about <laughs> fruit trees or wildflower seeds? So let's go with the wildflower seeds. Generally, it's, it, it can be a good idea to put seeds that were collected in an area that has a significant amount of cold weather for the winter. So that would not be Phoenix. It's up in the rest of North America. And a rule of thumb, and this came out of a woman who was doing research in for the U.S. Forest Service in Provo, Utah, one time I noticed among pestilence that they needed a chill in the refrigerator, roughly equal to the amount of time they would those plants would be under snow in the winter. Oh, that makes sense. So she would gather pestilence seeds at 9,000 feet, where the winter was nine months long, and they needed to be in the fridge longer than those down in Salt Lake City, where the winter was only about four or five. There was only snow for four or five months. You mm -hmm. get the drift a little bit. And I used to just get a, a baggie, put in compost, little, a, a damp compost or potting mix, and put the seeds right in there and seal it and then poke a couple of holes in it because you want some air. You don't want the holes big enough that it gets all over your fridge, but just poke a few holes so there is some air and throw it in the back of your refrigerator. Does not have to be in the freezer. Fridge tends to work well, for I'm generalizing. There are some yeah. things you have to get really specific about, but generally that'll work for many things like geraniums, the penstemons, lupins, things like that. Awesome. And I will speak to fruit trees. Which have nothing to do with that chill hours. Exactly. Right? So PJ, if you're asking about chill hours for fruit trees, it's the tree needs the chill hours in order to set fruit, not the seeds. And you can jump into our fruit tree education area if you want more information about that. Chella wants to know, do you recommend sowing in pots or outside in the fall or spring? I've done both. It's really difficult. And it gets back to what I was talking about before. Wildflowers don't work very well in pots. Mm -hmm. If they did, they'd be domesticated by now. That's just a rule of thumb. And so I prefer outside and I prefer planting them when the seeds naturally fall on the ground in your area. All right. And if that's not, if you've got things like African daisies that came from a completely different continent, probably early spring is when I would plant them. All right. Let's so we've wrapped up the questions. Any final thoughts, Bill? Oh, just have fun. Every flowering plant produces seeds. Find them. Every learn to look at dried heads, all the different sizes and shapes all over, wherever you are. I collected some, what was it? It was plantain seeds when oh. I was in New York City growing up out of the sidewalk because I thought it was pretty cool. Once you learn to tune your mind into looking for seeds, 
it becomes a huge, big adventure. And you can always, I always have packets or if not, my pockets are filled with seeds or whatever. Just yesterday morning, I gathered a bunch of seeds. There's a flower where I live called wand hold back. Have you ever heard of wand hold back? No, that's no. cool. It's cool. Little teeny bean pots, but I brought some home. So wherever you go, whatever you're doing, whenever you're there, collect seeds, learn. And if you don't know what it is, that doesn't matter. Plant them. And let them come up and flower. And then when they flower, you'll know what they are. So you can buy into this in any part of the cycle. You don't have to know them to collect them. That's a big myth too. But if you'll do that, you'll have success in your yard with all sorts of flowers and plants. And it's just more than anything else. Probably it's just a state of mind. We have to retrain ourselves. All right. We got one more question and then we're going to wrap. I right. use organza bags to put over the seed pods for things like milkweeds. So they don't blow away before I can get them. Is that a good method? Yeah, any, we've got a bowl of milkweed seeds in the kitchen. Every time I walk by, some of them puff up and float away. So whatever you can use to hold them down, yeah, yeah, works. So what you can do is use your hand. A friend of mine made a, a, a device that had um, nails on it that he put, that he would hook onto his drill and he put it down in a can to shred all of that fluff oh, that yes. comes for those kinds of seeds, the dandelion shoots oh, nice. or milkweed fluff or whatever. And it would break all of that down. So you get down to just the seeds in the bottom. And those are easier if you need to store them or whatever. So you can always yeah. take that stage too. I, I wanna thank you. I, I was just thinking, I think we started doing those these seed chats in 2016 or 2017, wow. which means you, and I'm going to go back. So next month, February, I will have this piece of data for us, how far back we go. But we go back, we've been doing these for five or six years, at least on every month. Wow. So I just want to thank you for your amazing information on all of this. I think that some of the people that showed up tonight have been there the whole time. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Without you guys showing up and spread the word. Let We can answer lots of questions. We can, we don't know the answers to everything, but we know where to point now in yeah. a lot of different directions. So yeah, we can sure give it a good shot. Yeah. All right, everybody have a happy holiday, Bill. Thank you so much for all your great work. And uh, yeah, yeah. And if, if you're in Utah, I'll be at the Utah Food and Farm Conference next month in January, giving a couple of talks. So nice. Utah Food and Farm is going to be a great, about 300 people finally coming back together after the pandemic. Nice. So excellent. And what is your website in case people want to connect oh. with you there? Seedsave.org. Seedsave.org. Yeah. And you and can you, get access to my seeds, Cornville seed through there. I've got about 90 heritage and ancient grains up right now and a few wildflowers. And yeah, you can learn about grains. Yeah, the Heritage yeah. Grain Alliance. Awesome. Thank right. you, Bill. Happy Take holidays, care. man. Bye, All everybody. Right. You too. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. 
In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free.